Welcome to the Business Diaries podcast, where we uncover the stories that shaped the business owner. Brought to you by Lisa Settle and Isla O'Hara. Welcome to the Business Diaries podcast. My name is Lisa Settle. And my name is Isla O'Hara. And we'll be your hosts for today. So the Business Diaries is a storytelling platform for businessmen and women to share their stories the ups and the downs of the entrepreneur, as it were, giving us a look into the person behind the business and hearing about their successes and their failures and all their interesting stories. We know that everyone has a story to tell, and we've been sharing stories for centuries, not us at the Business Diaries, but it feels like that. But (laughs) you know what I mean. One of the important roles of storytelling is bringing history alive and, and making us aware of what went before And we are, in fact, surrounded by amazing stories, but we just have to be curious enough to find them. We've got a guest sitting in the hot seat today, ready to share a story that he found. So, Isla, who's in the guest seat? Thank you, Lisa. I'm delighted to welcome Hacks to the Business Diaries. Welcome, Hacks. (laughs) Thank you for inviting me. Oh, I'm looking forward to the story. But before we hand you over to Hacks, let me tell you a little bit more about him. Hacks is a filmmaker and story consultant. He is the owner and CEO of Prisma Broadcast Limited, a communications agency that works with organizations to help them tell their brand's stories. In his words, he says, I help and facilitate brands to tell their stories so they inspire, motivate, and educate. We live in an attention economy now. Gaining engagement through content needs to appeal to the audience in new ways. Audiences are evolving and they are driving the nature of the content they are choosing to engage with. I know we are up for a fascinating conversation today. So if you're ready, Hacks, I'd like to hand over to you. I am. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, you've invited me very kindly to talk about a video vlog that I made about a a very interesting young American And this story came about by the fact that I don't know whether you could appreciate this. I'm sure that all of us have experienced it. But when you drive to places A to B, nine times out of 10, we're going, you know, we need to get to B quicker. So we get kind of focused on just the journey rather than actually noticing what's around us. Well, quite often I used to pass by an American flag that was always flying on the A2070 on Romney Marsh. And I wondered what this American flag was flying for. So I decided to stop and have a look and see what it was. And it's a memorial to a Lieutenant H. Johnson. And he was a 23-year-old pilot with the U.S. Air Force. He was based in Suffolk, East Anglia, and was part of the 8th American Air Force Group and was a member of the 117th Forward Bomber Squadron um, that was based uh, in England. Him and his crew used to fly a B-17 bomber, and they'd named it Spare Part. And they'd done quite a few bombing missions previous to the one that we're talking about today. He had a crew of eight plus himself, and they were, as I say, part of the ongoing overall bombing efforts towards the end of the Second World War. Lieutenant Johnson took off from his base in Suffolk 
on the morning of April the 13th, 1944. And him and his crew with their aircraft joined a bombing group who were uh, missioned to fly to Auschberg in Bavaria and bomb the Messerschmitt factory that was based on the outskirts. Their flight started at eight o'clock in the morning and their operational altitude was 19,000 feet. When they crossed over into France, it was completely uneventful and they made it all the way to Auschberg. But it was at that point that they were jumped by, um, and to use their words, a huge horde of Focke-Wulf 109s. These were German fighters, very fast, very uh, manipulable uh, aircraft that could fly in and out of the, the, the bombing groups and bestow their damage. And as a result, this uh, team of Focke-Wulfs flew right into the bomber group and were uh, shooting as many of the aircraft that they could get to. It was a heavily guarded factory, of course. Spare part and um, Johnson's crew immediately suffered an engine fire on engine number three, which uh, resulted in a, in a prop becoming very loose. So they had to feather the, the engine. And as a result, because of the loose propeller, the aircraft started to vibrate pretty, pretty badly. So Johnson decided that uh, rather than press on to the target, that he would turn home, which was part of their standing orders if their aircraft became damaged to a point where they, they may not return. They were, they were given clearance to, 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 to head back. With that, he ordered the bombs to be dropped early and they turned back towards England. But in doing so and in the mayhem and everything like that, they fell behind on the return journey. So the bomber group went on and actually completed the mission and they were flying back. But a spare part was a, was a tail end Charlie. So the crew ended up having to find anything movable, which included uh, a gun turret, some spare ammunition, some flak suits, and other bits of uh, loose equipment to, and they threw it out of the aircraft in order to save weight and allow them to gain speed, which they did. And they were able to catch up to the remnants of the, of the bomber group returning to England. But as they were going across the French, towards the French coast, they got jumped again by this time by Messerschmitt and um, Focke-Wulf fighters. And the result was that they lost another engine and another one was becoming severely damaged and was going on fire. Now, a B-17 has four engines and it's capable of flying quite easily on two engines. But as soon as you lose that third engine, your flight capability diminishes. So in the period that they had coming back from Auschberg, they were at 19,000 feet. But by the time they crossed into France and, and near the coast before the attack, they were at 8,000 feet. Then they eventually crossed over into uh, across the channel and into England, but they had lost so much altitude flying purely on one engine they crossed over between Folkestone and Highs at about a thousand feet. 
And Johnson felt that uh, there was no way that they were actually going to make it back to their base, let alone any forward landing areas here in, in Kent. So at the time, he realized that he had two wounded crew from the last uh, attack of German fighters. So he ordered the, the crew to uh, bail out, which they did. And uh, they did it with the help of Frank Hazard, who was a, a, a flight engineer and the top turret gunner. He helped get the, the two uh, wounded crew members out of the aircraft and parachute down to safety. And Frank Hazard wrote in his own words, and, and the story is so big anyway, that uh, part of my research actually was to, to find out his own personal account. Frank Hazard looked back uh, and saw Johnson out of his seat and preparing to, or was putting on his parachute. And at this time, they were now flying along the Lim Ridge, where, where the, the zoo is today, and they were about 800 feet. And when Frank Hazard actually jumped out of the aircraft, he noticed that the aircraft was actually flying towards the village of Ham Street, which is just on the, uh, the upper echelons of, of uh, Romney Marsh or, or Romney. And uh, he then saw the plane deliberately divert away from the village. As he was parachuting down, he saw the bomber crash into a field. At that point, he didn't know that Johnson had not made it and was actually killed in the aircraft. The next part of the story, which is, is really sad, but extremely brave, and I have amazing admiration for this young man, uh, is speculation. But based on the fact that Johnson decided to remain with the aircraft and that Frank Hazard had actually seen the aircraft divert deliberately, they assumed that Johnson had realized that the plane would probably crash into the village and had decided instead of bailing out, which was at, at a, a very low height of 800 feet, that he would remain with the aircraft and steer it away from the village. And in doing so, when the aircraft crash landed into the field, Lieutenant William Johnson was killed. And the, the memorial on the side of the road is now right on a junction called Johnson's Corner. And when the new bypass, which is the A2070, was built, Ham Street decided to uh, donate uh, a little corner of their village land, as it were, to this memorial. And the memorial really is thanks to a very, very brave young man who stayed with his aircraft to save innocent civilians because no doubt if even if it had uh, you know crashed on the outskirts or whatever there would have been casualties because villagers in Kent were, were busy we were all busy at the time working towards the war effort so no doubt he saved lives that day and sacrificed his own and his crew Frank Hazard and the rest of the crew didn't know that he hadn't made it for quite some time um, and then eventually in the personal account that Frank Hazard wrote about the day and what happened during that mission, the sad conclusion was that William Johnson has sacrificed his life. The memorial is thanks to him in perpetuity, I guess. Oh, my goodness. What a gallant young man. What a gallant well, young man. They're all so brave. The, the accounts of bravery is just in, incredible. And it... It just moved me and 
so many of us can ride past these places and and I just thought it's a story worth telling so absolutely I went out on my bike and a video camera and told the story yeah I, 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 you know thank you so much for sharing that Hex. I have to say it's, it's a really emotional story I have to admit I've got tears in my eyes and you know it's it's a trigger to all sorts of emotions and I know that You've shared that story, as you say, on your YouTube channel, your vlog. And how did you feel when you discovered that story? I mean, obviously, there was a period of time that you uncovered bits and pieces of the story. But, you know, how did you feel and, and, and what was it that made you want to share it? Well, my father was actually in Bomber Command. He served in Foggia, Italy. He was part of the RAF and he flew with 40 Squadron. He started to tell his stories as he got older, and I urged him to start writing them down. And, of course, as a filmmaker, I I sat there quite often in a pub and and put a little camera up and got him to just share the stories. And Mm. there are lots of lots of stories of him as a very young 21-year-old doing heroic things, both in the fog of war, in the spirit of war and everything. So any story like that resonates with me. Mm. Um, and for so long and and asking people in Kent you know what is that flag on the A2070 and nobody can say well I see it but I don't know what it is I thought it's worth investigating and as soon as I started to uncover the story itself I just thought this was this is just an amazing story of a really brave young man and they were all so brave Um, Mm. and I I have a 22 year old son and so I look, I look at him and thinking, oh my God, you know, he, at his age, he would be, he would be flying bombers, he'd be, you know, training and he'd be flying missions and so forth. It's Doesn't really amazing. Doesn't be thinking about, does it? Really, well, it's, it's it hard stops, to make the comparison. Exactly, it stops and makes you think. Towards the end, my my dad would raise money for the RF Benevolent Fund by going and signing books and and posters and photographs and so forth. And I can remember, because I was his carer as well, and I can remember standing behind him and he had a long queue of people asking him to sign the books and the photographs they bought at the exhibitions or whatever. And a, a young gentleman turned around and said, I have a son who is 23 and I wouldn't even let him use my lawnmower I wouldn't trust him that much um and it kind of it kind of reflects sum it up doesn't it well it does you know it it really does uh and I guess history and and modern times change and the way in which young people are, are are always different to to the where they were in history and so forth but it was a time of war and it was driven by the, the the desire to be a hero, the desire to serve your country, the desire to um, the macabre desire, I guess, to mm. go and, and and kill enemy, whatever. It's all all of those are the driving forces. But mm. the the one thing when they got into those aircrafts, all of those young men, they they did what they were ordered to do, yeah, ordered by absolutely. much older and much wiser and much more experienced men. So they were they were the front end of the war. Yeah. Um, yeah. And Bomber I Command. Hope... Sorry, just Sorry. one thing. Bomber Command suffered over fifty percent loss uh, really? in the Second World War. This is unbelievable. I, I, I really hope that the villagers 
of of Ham Street and and particularly the children, the you know the primary schools get to hear that story. I hope that they do share it, and and sometimes they do share local history like that, don't they? But oh, it would be of course they do so mm. nice for them to know that their village was saved by such a such a, a brave act, and you know that that was per- perhaps their great grandparents there yes. you know who were there yeah. at the time yeah. so exactly and who knows how much damage that that aircraft would have made to the to the village and i think that i think that they are very grateful and they do remember it and i know that i know for a fact that schools go there but if you visit visit the memorial there's a there's a garden there and it's very well kept the grass is always kept short there's always a flag flying and when i visited in april to make the film um, of course it was covered in daffodils yeah oh. lovely mm. and and i think that you you know the honoring of the story and keeping that memory alive is because the story is still being told you know by people like you hacks and in the primary schools and and I think that that's where the true honour and, and our role really is to keep telling the stories. And that's where the power of storytelling comes to the fore. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. Very Absolutely. powerful. And, and of course, before written, the written word, we would pass down our history verbally. Yeah, so, absolutely. So stories have been with us yeah. since early man. You know, you just have to look at cave drawings of to, course. to appreciate that stories were being told. And I think another important thing too is the fact that we we stop to listen. We, you know, we mentioned before about being curious, you know, that we we look around us and we it's such a busy world, you know, A to Z, we're really fast rushing around. You know, but I love the fact that you, you know, you stopped, you went and you were curious, you you went on your motorbike. And as you said, I think in one of your blogs, that you're searching for the fascinating, interesting, and amazing people and their stories. That I mean, I'd love to hear more about. So, you know, your motorcycle that the, and how you go off looking for stories. And do you just sort of get up in the morning, think, right, I'm going to go off today and see see what I can find and see see where I'm going to go. Have you always been a biker? Uh, yes, I. Um, uh, it was my first mode of transport. And then at 17, my mum persuaded me to to uh, convert to a car because she was too worried of, of me being on two wheels and so forth. <laughs> she won that She won that battle for a short period of time. And then um, I guess in the last seven or eight years, you know, as I've got older, I've thought, you know, I, 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 riding a bike is such an exhilarating experience anyway. Um, and, and as long as you ride safely, mm. it's a perfectly safe thing to do. And it's brilliant. But I don't know whether you're anything like me, but everything has to have a purpose. So I would rather get on a bike and go and look for something and do a specific journey that that will be interesting rather than just getting on a bike and going from A to B or, you know, doing the loop just Mm. for the sake of getting on there and riding it. So, and I know that a lot of people enjoy getting on a bike and going and doing 60 mile loop to just to be on a bike. But for me, I've always loved stories and I just thought, well, what a, an interesting angle, and this comes back from my documentary filming days, is always you always have to find the angle. But an interesting angle would be to ride a bike and go and look for stories. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So you've just sort of talked about your documentary time. I know that you started your career in photography. So yes, talk us through how did we go from photography to filmmaking? And I guess okay, there's a well, bit of documentary making in between there then. Yes. Um, 
I, I, I was born in, in East Africa. I grew up in East Africa. So I grew up with amazing stories and amazing books around, you know, my family had an amazing library of all sorts of historic books, you know, from Joseph Thompson, who was the first man through Mars Island, first uh, white man to, to walk through Mars Island and live. So stories like Joy Adamson's Born Free, mm. Ernest Hemingway, Africa stories, Taryn Blixen and, and um, Out of Africa, Daphne Sheldrick and the Orphans of Savo. They, they were all stories and books that I read or my mother encouraged me to read. So stories were always around me. And, and you would hear uh, when, when my parents used to talk to the old tribal leaders, you know, back in, in the 60s and 70s, you would hear them convey stories of their past and their traditions and their history. And I would pick up these things. So I became enthralled with the whole aspect of stories. And then leading on from there, one of our family's personal friends was Peter Beard, and he wrote a book, a photographic coffee table style book called The End of the Game. And he predicted the decimation of the wildlife in Africa through human and wildlife conflict and hunting and all of that. And then my family also knew Alan Root. He was a great film documentary or wildlife film maker. And Jean Hartley, she was a, another wildlife documentary filmmaker. So it was all there. So I guess leaning out to photography, and I'm more of a creative rather than an academic, I guess, but, but I have dyslexia. So reading and, and being too academic is always something that I've shied away from. But anything creative, I've, I've responded to. And photography was the first thing that I really, A, enjoyed, but B, got a claim for. Mm. I, I won my mm. first school prize ever, you know, as a, in a photographic contest. And I thought, oh, my God, you know, and that was, a great, that was yeah. a great drive. Exactly. And then before, as I was studying photography at college, before I knew it, people were saying, oh, you know, would you do a wedding for my daughter or uh, my niece has just, you know, been born, would you, would you do some portraits and so forth? So it, it started to become a, a financially supporting career. Was this still in Africa? Uh, it started in Kenya, but then I, I came to school here in Devon in 1971 and then left in 1976. Uh, I was supposed to be going on to university, but to study naval architecture, that was kind of where I was thinking. But as I got closer to leaving, um, I decided that photography was was really something that where my heart was. And yeah. my parents were fully behind me. They said, if you if you want to do creative, go creative. So yeah. that's that's how it started. Yeah. So my first photographic work full time as a profession, I guess, was in London. Right. But I always okay. went back to Africa, always went back to Africa. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, how, how did you move then from the photography into filmmaking and, and the documentary side of things? In London, I was a commercial photographer for, uh, and I did catalogues, fashion spreads and, and stuff like that for mainly the commercial end of the business rather than the editorial end. But um, I, I enjoyed that. But whenever I went back to Kenya, I always did photographic, almost um, National Geographic-esque style uh, little projects, mm. which weren't commercially motivated. I wasn't commissioned to do them. I just enjoyed doing them. And then I was lucky enough to, to make contact with um, certain publishers like uh, Newsweek International and so forth. 
and that that kind of sparked my interest in social history. Mm. But when you, you get to a stage when you're doing stills photography, that if you're fascinated by uh, the moving image, uh, eventually you move into mm. the moving image. I was blown away at the whole whole process of creating a story using the moving image and what was involved. And I just loved it from the get-go. So slowly but surely, I morphed commercially into, into filmmaking and documentary making. And of course, I used my Africa card quite often mm. because I speak Swahili. So I, I, I'm getting on the ground and, and finding out uh, stories on poaching or social history or education or famine or whatever, it was easy for me to put a proposal together and get a commission from it. Oh, it's absolutely fascinating. And with such a fabulous grounding in storytelling from your parents growing up, surrounded by all of those stories. Mm. Um, I'm interested in how filmmaking has changed and is going to continue to change as we are living in a world now where our attention spans are getting shorter. You know, we talk about this term, the attention economy. We mentioned it earlier. You know, we, we have this a lot in communications, particularly marketing, referring to the fact that it, it's harder and harder to attract people's attention and then also to retain people's attention. And that, you know, obviously, while we're paying attention to one thing, we're ignoring another thing and creating this new phrase that's coming around, this poverty of attention. So how do you see the attention economy and our ever-decreasing attention spans changing and influencing the way filmmaking is happening now and going to change in the near future? To go back, I guess, to documentary, especially when I started making documentaries, it, it wasn't unheard of to be commissioned to make a 57-minute film. And then, then soon it dropped to 32-minute films uh, or 26-minute films, depending on who the commission was. Uh, and that was because basically attention was was beginning to change at, at that point, and this is in the in the nineties. And I think that as the internet has developed and and video has become a, a commodity or a piece of content that is served so easily onto our mobile phones, onto our laptops, onto our TVs, and so forth, we are driven by a plethora of content. And the result is there's always a challenge. And this is where the economy, the attention economy starts to kick in. There's a challenge of how much time as a viewer are you prepared to invest in listening to watching or experiencing a story? And when you are spoilt for choice, you isolate the stuff that really interests you. Mm. So the attention economy is driven by resonance. Are we, do we find resonance with a story about? poaching in Africa, do we find resonance about the story of um, how important meadows are in British agriculture? Are those the sort of things, you know? And mm. as a motorcyclist, uh, I watch video blogs that other people make. Uh, they are stories of them riding the bikes and camera technology is has driven a level of technology where we've got a camera that is no more than two inches across and it will shoot 4K, high-quality professional images in these action cameras. So there's a combination of our unwillingness to invest in our time in stuff that we're not interested in, and also at the same time, the growth and the ability of technology, including editing, to make engaging content. Of course, lots of people make really 
unengaging content. But mm. equally, there are there's the cream, and the cream will always rise to the top. In other words, we're kind of we're we're losing our curiosity. We're so used to having things handed to us on a plate to keep our attention going that we don't we're not thinking for ourselves even, are we? Well, there's a danger of that happening, I agree. Definitely. It's frightening, really. And um, I guess at the end of the day, is it up to the parents to maintain some level of education in mm. terms of being fascinated with stories? You know, we go through, when we drive from A to B or we get on a train or we go for a walk or whatever, we pass stories all the time. Mm. A lot of them are historic. A lot of them are, you know, are fascinating. I mentioned a meadow just now. I've just heard of a story of, of a farmer not very far from Hastings, and they've got a, a meadow at the bottom, and it's not been ploughed for 200 years. It's never, ever been ploughed for 200 wow. years. And what's the, what's quality, the reason for that? Well, basically, he just preserves the meadow. He wants, okay. he wants the meadow to be preserved. And as a result, there is a whole chain of wildlife there's a whole chain of fauna and um, flora going on in there that you, you just don't find anywhere else I think a story has to pique you I often yes. tell our clients yeah. you know you may have a really interesting story or you may feel you have an interesting story but is it interesting to someone else yeah, exactly. and yeah. if it isn't and you still believe that you have an interesting story, then the challenge is to find a way in which to tell that story in an interesting yeah. way. And you mentioned before, filmmakers are always looking for the angle. Yes. And, you know, so that kind of brings me to the next question of, about the elements that you have to consider when you're putting a film together. You know, you mentioned before about Jeopardy. And, you know, sometimes you've got that feel-good factor <laughs> you want to bring. You know, what, what's, that, what's the recipe, Hex? Well, there, there is a general recipe, but like all rules, I think rules should be broken. Um, and that, <laughs> that, that's all about your creativity, how you approach a story and how you tell it. But if you would get to like write an ingredients list for a story, you need a setup, a context, you need a hero and you need a villain. You need jeopardy. You need a resolution. The resolution is the, is the happy ending. It may equally be not a happy ending. But I think that as long as you've got all of those elements, you've got the elements for a story. But it's how you tell those elements and how you put those elements together. Have you ever watched a film where it actually it reveals the end at the very beginning and then it goes 15 months earlier? Mm, you know? mm. um, and when you're telling a story that's so well known, like uh, the Penley lifeboat, that really horrible disaster we all know and it's so easy to research that the penley lifeboat went out one autumn evening during a storm to rescue some sailors off a, a strucken ship and the result is that every single one of the lifeboat men died when the penley lifeboat capsized you know the ending mm. so there's no reason why you couldn't tell the story to say this is it. This is the story. You know, it, they all died. So you open up with the horror of the village and the families finding out that none of their men would return. And then you then go back in and you then build your setup. And your setup, would, in this case, would be your 
your characters. So all of the members and their families and the sort of lives that they, they lived and the sort of passions that they had and, and the loves that they had and everything like that. You make it a very personal and in-depth character introduction. And then all of the heroes, the hero, the main hero possibly was the captain of the boat, for instance, and the decisions that, you know, and the bravery that inspired, his bravery that inspired all of the other crew members. Mm. And the jeopardy, of course, is the storm. It doesn't have yeah. to be, sorry, not the jeopardy, the, the, the villain is the storm. It doesn't mm. have to be a person. It doesn't have to be a character. Mm. It can be a thing. It can mm. be an event. The jeopardy was the danger that they all knew before they even got on that boat that they were going into very heavy and very dangerous seas. And when they eventually did get to the, the, the boat that they were trying to rescue, who, the crew that they were trying to rescue, they knew that that would have absolute uh, dangers. It would be fraught with danger. So the jeopardy lies in what would they do to, to A, get to the boat and, and B, save their lives on that boat. Mm, yeah um, and then and in, the, in the midst of all of that you're raising so many emotions in all the people watching it or hearing the story that they resonate mm, they begin to resonate with, exactly. with all the people and that's the one major task of a good story it has to appeal uh, appeal to our emotions it has yeah. to have empathetic value mm. if mm. we do not feel emotion in any story we won't engage with it Mm. That comes down to whether you're interested in biking, motorbiking, or whether you're interested in boats or whatever. If you are not emotionally motivated by that story, you won't engage. That's a simple rule. Yeah, that's true. Which defines our attention economy. Because, yeah. as you say, we just want that um, dopamine fix by watching yeah. something we like. And it could be a 30-second video of someone jumping off a, a bridge or you know, eating a cake or cooking a steak or, or anything. It's fascinating. These are some fabulous tips for any business owners who um, are thinking of how to tell a story through film to promote their business. Have you got any other top tips for our listeners? Top tips. Um, every business has a story. In fact, they have three stories. They have the founding story, they have the business story, and then they have their customer story. And I think that if marketers in organizations actually spent a bit of time looking at what those are within their own organizations, they would soon find the core of a story. And then, of course, you need a storyteller to, to tell it. And storytelling isn't a closed skill set. We, we're all storytellers in, in our own ways. When we come home from work and our, our partners ask, how are we? And say, oh, I had a really interesting day. I met so-and-so. You're telling a story. Mm. Um, so what you have to do is you have to find a way in which that story becomes of interest and is resonates with the viewer. And if that viewer is your client, your customer, then you need to appeal to what they want to know. What challenges do they have in, in a business? Um, what pain points do they have? What, uh, what do they want to overcome? And what would that, if they overcame it, what would that life look like? That's part of the resolution of a business story is what would life look like if they used that business's product or service, mm -hmm. uh, mm. which would involve then buying it. And of course, that then appeals because it's imagining what their lives would look like or what their business would be like if they had that problem solved. 
And there's your empathy. That's the biggest converter in sales is mm. converting empathy to make that decision to buy because we make a decision to buy anything on emotion, yeah. not fact. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Gosh, well, thank you for those tips. And um, honestly, we've, we've run out of time again. How can people engage with you? How can they get hold of you? What's your website address? Give us all um, those things. So I'm, people I'm, can I'm get quite easy. I, I can be found on LinkedIn, Mike Hacks, brackets Hacks. That's my LinkedIn profile. My company name is Prisma Broadcast. You can find that on the internet. Uh, we've got a website, obviously. My video vlog, which is a personal thing, but again, that has all sorts of benefits in terms of my business as well, is Hacks Filmmaker. And there's a YouTube channel called Hacks Filmmaker, H-A-X Filmmaker. Yeah, easy as, as, as that, really. And, and you can find my email address uh, on, on any of those platforms. Brilliant. Okay, thank you for that. Now, Isla, <laughs> take away time. <laughs> yes, as as always so many, but I'm going to pick up on a phrase that Hacks used. Cream will always rise to the top. And I think for me, absolutely sums up that clarity of purpose around the video. You know, not, not just the purpose of the video itself, but the story and the message that we're trying to convey through video and how that resonates with our audience. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it's highlighted to me, it took me a while before to realise what it was that I enjoyed, you know, when meeting new people, you know, when you met new people and you you chatted with them and you never know what's behind the person. You never know what story they're going to bring. And that's what I always used to love about meeting people. But, you know, the story today and the discussion with Hacks, you know, has highlighted that there's also a story waiting to be uncovered at every corner. So it's a reminder to be curious, not to say, let's wait and see what people bring to us. Let's go out and find it. Mm. And, and it's important to stay curious because this whole attention span discussion is is worrying, I think. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to looking around and see what there is to be discovered. That's quite an exciting thought, I think. And I think that there's so many opportunities for all of us to get off our phones and get off our computers and go out. And within, I guarantee that within, let's say, a mile of your house, there will be one or two really interesting stories. Mm -hmm. They may be historic, they may be current, they may be economic, they may be ecological. But I guarantee if you actually look and start looking, it's like it's like that yellow car. Oh, I fancy a yellow car. And then all of a sudden you see lots of yellow yeah. cars. Yes. If you look yeah, for stories, yeah, yeah. you'll find them. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, sadly, it's time to wrap up the podcast. But thank you, Hacks, for bringing a historical story to the podcast. It really has been quite an emotional roller coaster in putting ourselves in Lieutenant Johnson. Is it Johnson or Johnston? No, Johnson. Johnson, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, putting ourselves in his shoes and very grateful to him for, for what he did. Absolutely, and all of so, them. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. So thank you for sharing your, your time, your story, your expertise, all those good thank things. You. It's been brilliant. We also have to give thanks to, to our hero, Paul Cheese, who's the <laughs> the business diaries hero for composing our little jingle and helping us with editing, etc. Um, Isla, are there any announcements before we go? 
Just to remind you all to look us up on Twitter and Facebook at The Biz Diaries. Let us know what you think about our episode uh, with Hacks and to check out some of our previous episodes. And also don't forget to look up Hacks' YouTube channel and watch the film about Lieutenant Johnson. We will put the details in the show notes. Excellent. Okay, so finally, thanks go to you, the listener, for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed today's story and the discussion and you'll join us for the next one. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We hope you have enjoyed listening to this edition of The Business Diaries. We would love to hear your feedback. Please find us on Twitter and Facebook at The Biz Diaries. 